Hello humans! Hello humans! It's 11.30 on July 5th. Outward bound. Got all my chores done and as expected, the town has been pretty much picked over by tourists and there were, geez, there were like seven or eight different items that were uh, not available. Uh, eh, so it goes. Got uh, my other chores done and and uh, did a little meeting with some people and arranged for a future project here. So it's all good. Heading back now. I got to take it easy today, not being able to sleep and everything. And then yesterday, of course, um, while all the fireworks and shit's going on, I'm uh, setting up a new server. Got to lower the window here. It's hot. It'll be a bit noisy. There we go. Anyway, I was going to talk about space aliens and stuff as usual. Now, this is kind of an interesting um, wrinkle on things, though, as we try and uh, put together and recreate uh, actual human history. I mean, that's what we're working on is an attempt to uh, fill in the gaps, so to speak, right? And to um, uh, overcome all the deliberate um, uh, lies and obscuring of, of uh, actual human history here and come up with a, um, a, a timeline, sort of. I'm, I'm satisfied with just knowing the order in which things happened, right? Uh, because the numeric year is going to be open to question. We've had any number of uh, redos on calendars and repegging on years, uh, you know, uh, through time. So um, not really, not really uh, hot on an individual number being all that accurate. As long as we know the sequence of things and an approximate date, that's good enough for me at this stage uh, for, for what we're doing here. But we're trying to recreate... Um, something close to a, a historic timeline that reconciles uh, historic literature, right? So uh, we find that, um, oh, like as an instance, the Jewish people say that their calendar begins with the creation of Adam and Eve, and there were uh, no humans prior to that. Never mind the fact that, you know, in Genesis and all of this, we see that there were uh, people around, lots of people, and that the gods showed up and mucked about with the DNA and created the sons of God who um, uh, decided that the women of the, uh, of the indigenous human population were attractive, and so they, they started interbreeding. And so we end up with the situation we have now, right? And so if you actually go through and read it chronologically, uh, basically, what the Old Testament and the um, Torah are saying is that in the beginning, Earth existed. Um, doesn't actually say that Earth was created or any of that in the in the actual Torah, right? If you go read it in the Hebrew, none of that stuff is in there. Um, in fact, most of the translated words in English that are there in the in the Bible are not. We won't find a Hebrew version of that word in the Torah. So, um, you know, kind of a, 
interesting situation, right? You can go and you can say, some quote me some Bible verse, and I'll say, okay, let's go actually see if that verse, if it's an Old Testament, if that verse actually exists, and if, if it does, what does it actually say? Because it doesn't say that, uh, it actually says that, you know, the gods came down, uh, they found a bunch of humans, um, they GMO'd some, and they created what they called the sons of the gods. And from then on, we've had GMO humans <coughs> running around that were mucked about with uh, by the L. Now, this is not the only time our, our DNA has been screwed with, right? This is just the most recent. In any event, though, so um, we have these uh, this understanding that that is really not quite factual in terms of, of when things occur in, uh, in particular orders, right? Uh, that's not good. There we go. Anyway, so... Um, there. So anyway, I'm working with some people. We're trying to recreate an actual timeline. We go and we read all this old literature. We go and read the old literature in the original language. Or we find somebody who can come and work with us who knows that language and is willing to do the translation for us because we're quite tedious about this, right? Um, uh, frequent debates about which word should be translated by which other word in English. Now, there's this known expansion factor from English. English has a... Uh, it's concise to a certain degree, but if you're like translating it into uh, Spanish or, or any of the Romance languages, any of the, the languages that are predominantly based on Latin, such as Spanish, Portuguese, etc., uh, you will find that there's an expansion from the English, that if you've got 120 words in English, it'll probably take you 130, maybe up to 150 words uh, in uh, a Romance language to translate that, that statement. And this also works the other way. There are some languages where um, uh, we find that there's more words in English needed to convey the, the meaning than the words used in that native language. And so this is true of um, uh, Hebrew, it's true of uh, Japanese, and a um, uh, number of other languages, right? You need more words in English to say the same thing. And so we find that there's this expansion factor that can be be dealt with mathematically. It's a known mathematical formula, a very complex algorithm, depending on what your uh, the subject being discussed. But it's a uh, very accurate, right? Very reproducible. It always works. It'll always be within this level of error of um, or, or range of error. Uh, you know, so depending on the subject, maybe it's 135 words uh, it takes in English, or it's 155 words. That sort of thing. There's a small amount of variance, but not much and it would never be 170 words unless it was a bad translation. And so that's what we have here relative to the Bible uh, and the uh, underpinning Hebrew uh, Torah. Okay, there's, there's far fewer words in the Torah relative to the Bible, and it, ex and it exceeds the error range on the expansion. So in other words, if that was translated, even badly, you know, like, del not deliberately badly, but just... Uh, like incompetent, if that was translated very badly, we are still way uh, above any kind of an expansion factor that would um, fit here. So we know that they added shit, that they added a lot of shit. 
um, because the expansion factor is like uh, almost twice as what it should be. Uh, so you get that many more words in the Old Testament, and then if you start looking at the various different versions of the Bible, you see that the uh, Old Testament varies hugely. And we get into understanding that the Torah itself is variant, that there's, you know, different versions of the Torah existent uh, through uh, what we think is the Middle Ages, but from like 800 A.D. onward. But we even find that there's variants going back to 100 A.D., and then the supposed... Um, history for an oral Torah. Okay, so in any event, this is all the Kali Yuga. We, we didn't know how to type. We didn't have machinery. We had to write shit down. We had to put letters in clay and all of this because we were so stupid. And But in any event, though, so if we look at all this language, we find that shit does not add up. Okay, so we know that the, the Jewish people... Um, uh, that Adam and Eve were uh, 4,191 years uh, BC, right? Uh, that's when that happened. And so the Jewish people have a history that's uh, about five or 6,000 years old or, or long, and we know that there's millions of years of history of humans prior to that. Um, what, what I'm doing is I'm working with a lot of other guys, a lot of old uh, retired fellows here, and we're all trying to figure out you know, what happened and when did it happen in the various different places. Um, we're trying to recreate uh, actual history based on, uh, like a detective story based on clues and uh, fitting all the clues together. And so there are some things that, that we're trying to reconcile to. So we have lots and lots and lots and lots of Sanskrit literature um, that discusses the period of time uh, that, that uh, all of us old Ralphs are interested in. And uh, the Sanskrit literature has definitive statements. Now, what's really cool about Sanskrit and the way that they wrote the literature at the time was that they were very much, um, uh, probably they influenced the Egyptians to do the same, but these guys were very much into uh, astronomy, okay? And uh, thus also astrology, and they did it from a sidereal perspective, okay, from a solar perspective, not an earth perspective. And this makes a big difference if you examine um, uh, astronomy and uh, astrology, right? And so we're sort of, in a way, all of us old guys are trying to do like um, decipher astro-archaeological uh, clues and come up with a timeline for when certain things occurred. And uh, we have definitive statements, you know, so like you have the Jewish uh, Old Testament or Jewish uh, Torah that says uh, when Adam and Eve, uh, or when Adam was created, that, that marks the beginning of time uh, for, the, for man. And then later on, they sort of fudge that and say that marks the beginning of time for the Jewish people. Um, we know from, from facts that Jew, Judaism did not exist uh, at the time of any of the people in the Bible, right? They had a religion that was based on uh, the Canaanite or Akkadian religion, which was um, uh, all of this ball worship, right? Only we were mis misappropriating a term. Ball is a label. It was not a God's name or any of that. Uh, ball was a category of, of person within the uh, invading um, force just the way that uh, Satan is the word for lawyer in, for that force. And so we know 
uh, well, if you go and read the book of Job, they talk about a particular individual L having to serve as the Satan in a particular court. And so we even have our courts, our attorneys, the references, all of that take from the L. Okay, so once again, emulating our space alien masters, right? But anyway, so um, we know from the, from the statements that um, within the Old Testament, where to pig one point about, you know, 4,200 years uh, before uh, the current era. Uh, we have other clues in Sanskrit that, that we don't rely on them giving a, a date and then having a perpetual calendar that keeps that date, uh, which was something that was sort of unique to the Jews and the Mesoamericans, all right? They both kept track of time that way. And it's very much a mechanistic way to keep track of time. It's very much a um, like a computer approach to keeping track of time, like counting all the clock ticks, right? So you can go ask a computer what time it is. If you want to ask it in programming language, you can ask it what clock tick are you on, and then you do the math to convert that to, you know, day, date, um, and uh, time. Okay, but it's actually counting a... a the number of clock ticks based on the number of times that electricity pulses through a particular chip. And the way in which the Jews and the way in which the Mesoamericans both kept track of time was very much like that, as though they were emulating or trying to replicate that form of, of timekeeping. Now, we do not see that form of timekeeping in um, uh, the other societies that had not had the L uh, ensconced within them. Okay, so we don't see that kind of timekeeping in um, Vedic cultures, in the, in the Hindu cultures uh, at all. They, they have an astronomical, a sidereal astronomical approach to keeping track of what day it is and time and stuff, right? So you don't worry about it. Anytime you want to know what time it is, you look at the stars and, uh, and calculate from there. Uh, so a different approach entirely. You let universe decide what time it is and you just ask it, so to speak. You query the machine by, by asking universe what time is it based on uh, these stars, right? As opposed to trying to keep track of what day and, and time it is based on keeping track of each individual day and the hours and so on. Because, um, you know, you could forget, your timekeeper could die, you'd have to restart. All of these things have happened. Uh, so anyway, so... Um, we have within Sanskrit um, astronomical uh, calendar uh, markers for very specific things that we know occurred. And so we have the, the knowledge of this thing occurring in dozens and dozens and dozens of uh, various different books, none of which of these books are dependent on any of the other books for existence. In other words, any of, all of these references to this particular event uh, were all independent of each other and existed separately and were non-referential, except for a couple that, you know, where they referenced, oh yeah, we think that this occurred here and this guy did this, but also look, this other guy in this other book here says the same. And so one of these uh, things that we do have an astronomical peg for is um, uh, in the Hindu society is a particular um, group of rishi, okay, of knowledgeable people, of people that had skills. Uh, we're not going to provide them with an academic label. That's something that comes from the L. And as we know, those are all bogus, like fake news. You know, you have fake professors. They don't really know shit. Uh, just part of the system to keep you controlled. Um, they're not really teaching you anything. 
Anyway, though, so uh, the the Hindu societies record a whole group of individuals uh, coming down and laying knowledge on the Hindu people after a um, localized uh, catastrophe. Okay, so this this was not after a great flood. This was after a period of time when the Indus Valley had flooded very, very, very severely and displaced a lot of the Indus Valley people and disrupted their social order. At that period of time, shortly thereafter, we get um, this group of red-headed Rishi, okay? So you have to understand, you know, really go and explore how the Hindus think of Rishi and so on, right? Because they think of them as, oh, enlightened beings, you know, uh, people that are ahead of the uh, generalized curve in, in spirituality, that kind of thing, right? Uh, in that sense, they are divine beings, but they're no less and no more divine uh, than any other person, right? Any other being. And so uh, so they're not canonized like a saint. We don't hold them up um, in that manner, right? As, as like a, some kind of a spooky... Uh, uh, state of existence. We know why we like these guys is because they were nice people that came down, they told us shit, they didn't ask for stuff, they weren't trying to control us, they were just trying to be uh, helpful humans, uh, and a group of them, for whatever reason, under whatever circumstances, uh, arrived in the Indian uh, subcontinent at a particular time. And we see that these people took up residence in Nepal and Tibet, northern India, um, uh, Pakistan, Iran, all throughout this entire region. And there, we know that, okay, so if we look at the literature, it is possible to confuse some of these individuals to the point where we can't say if this Iranian literature is talking about the same guy as the, the Hindu, as the Indian literature, right? We can't tell. The timing is pretty close. Uh, they could be talking about the same guy. The words they're using to describe him are all the same. Basically red hair, uh, pale uh, red beards, and so on, right? Uh, but is it just a group of these individuals or is it just one guy uh, uh, that was very, very, very productive going around and visiting a lot of people? There's a lot to suggest it's a group. And we actually have differing names and so on. So at this point, our guys uh, that are working on this, we've all assumed, we, we've all decided we're going to assume it was a group. And we have other reasons for this assumption as well. Um, but what's interesting is a lot of interesting things about these red-headed Rishi. Okay. Uh, the red-headed Rishi show up and then everybody they talk to, they are very, very, very forthcoming. All right. These Rishi do not hide. They don't prevaricate. They don't lie. Uh, they are um, good guys, and they're here to be helpful. They're not uh, trying to exploit. They're not trying to take advantage of anybody. And as I say, as far as, uh, I mean, we have lots of reasons to think that these guys were not in any way lying or covering up their um, uh, their story, right? Because they all said that they came from this great civilization in the far north. And that in some of the um, Tamil literature and some of the non-Hindi uh, literature that was still associated with the Indus Valley and with Sanskrit, uh, so, you know, slight variants, uh, more ancient and so on, as well as in uh, literature in... Um, 
uh, Tibet and Nepal that a lot of the monasteries there uh, held. Now, so a lot of the monasteries uh, that existed, that exist now, were created as a result of these Rishi guys. We don't have it anywhere where the Rishi guys said you had to do this. These were not instructions. These were like uh, sort of a good idea. All these red-headed Rishi guys came down and told the Hindus basically all about the yuga system, all about science, about consciousness, uh, the difference between consciousness and grit and how grit comes from consciousness, not the other way around, and all of these other bits of what we would think of as enlightened wisdom, okay? And so um, they came and they laid all this knowledge on us, and then some of the peoples uh, took the understanding of the yugas very seriously and they created monasteries such that uh, knowledge would be preserved. Sort of like um, Asimov's Foundation Trilogy, right? Where the foundation is to preserve and shorten the time between great galactic empires to reduce the amount of suffering on all of humanity spread throughout space. That's what these guys were doing on Earth. The Rishi didn't tell these guys to build monasteries. They did that on their own and of their own volition, and they were uh, their own form of knowledge keepers and history keepers, and, the, and they would write this shit down, and then they would collect vast quantities of books, and then they would store and hide the books. That's why we keep finding all of these caches of, you know, 10,000 Sanskrit books hidden behind a wall in a particular monastery in Nepal. And another cache that was is maybe is I've heard it's 150,000 volumes, some of which are so old they're in um, tubes, they're in uh, scroll form, not leaf books, uh, which were leaf books were uh, easier to store and uh, you know um, uh, take care of, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So anyway, though, so these Rishi gave all the knowledge, and a lot of these people built. Um, monasteries and decided to preserve the knowledge because the Rishi had told them what was coming. And so we have reason to believe that these Rishi showed up uh, after this particular local uh, catastrophe period uh, in India uh, that really disrupted the Indus Valley civilizations, uh, really devastated them. And uh, the Rishi brought knowledge there. And then it, it, and we have a particular reason for suspecting the date and we think that that's date that date is about 6000 BCE so about um, 8500 years from our date uh, so about 8000 years back uh, that this occurred and um, anyway so what we're trying to do is to build a timeline that references these contacts with our current society and you know all of the things put in there like uh, the T Tartarian Empire, uh, its evolution, and all of this. The thing about Tartaria, by the way, that's really fascinating to all of us um, radical-ass uh, linguistic fuckers, is that Tartaria had an alphabet that was 202 uh, letters, okay, contained 202 letters, but the Tartarian alphabet clearly grew, uh, was clearly altered, uh, uh, whether it was an organic or whether it was by design, in, in three specific um, chunks, so to speak. So you can basically chop it up into thirds, but we have a, have a period when they had an alphabet that was in the order of uh, 35 or 36 letters. And then it expanded over time. And this is most fascinating, okay? Just from a linguistic viewpoint, this is most fascinating. Um, I won't go into that, take hours and hours and hours on our discussion of that kind of stuff. Nonetheless, though, 
uh, we're trying to put together this this timeline and fill in all the gaps. You know, we're retired, we got nothing better to do. And it, and it actually has yielded all kinds of very interesting um, observations from which we are coming to specific conclusions. Now, I've come to some conclusions uh, based on my personal history, and I'll be getting into those at uh, some point here once it's all, as I say, fleshed out, and I've got enough evidence to support this uh, in someone else's mind, right? So I think that the my premise is factual, is certainly believable. Uh, now I just need to get the evidence to so someone else can say, yeah, uh, it's believable, and it may be factual because of this following, right? And so I want to find all of those because of the following and present those at the same time. So this is a, a bit of work, um, not a real quick knock it off kind of a thing. Anyway, though, so um, the red-headed Rishi coming from the North Pole, which is a couple of, couple of the citations for it uh, in the Hindus, suggests that that was indeed the case. Uh, they're, they're in the Iranian literature, there's like very specific references that peg this uh, to an area um, in uh, western Siberia. Okay, so they were coming from the very far north, and, and you know, how did they know? What was the point? We don't, there's so much speculation about this, we're just tracking on what we know right now, and what we can deduce, especially relative to um, uh, the potential for timelines and years and stuff. There's reasons for us getting into that math, um, independent of just wanting to know. There's We've got a couple of goals here. Um, and actually, the goals relate to um, uh, North America and some stuff that that we think we're on the hunt for. <laughs> so anyway, you know, not being mysterious, I just don't want to put it out there for a lot of reasons. Um, don't want to get people whipped up if we're nowhere close. And, you know, we have to adjust all the time because we come across new information. Somebody translates a new book and says, hey, look what this says. And then we have to redo everything, right? So uh, just the nature of the kind of thing we're trying to do. Uh, in any event, though, it's from uh, for our perspective, it's quite fascinating. I've got, uh, I set up a new server yesterday, uh, four terabytes in one drive, and I've got a 16 uh, or I've got an array of, of 16 terabyte drives. <laughs> I mean, my first computer had 2K of RAM, and it had a, um, uh, I think I had 10K on a, on floppy disks. <laughs> so not much in the way of storage. But anyway, so um, uh, we're still working on it. Um, it may be that we're going to get really heavily involved in this. And I'll have to reduce um, other activities because I've got to do my my house construction while it's summer here. I've got to get at this stuff, right? And so uh, that part is really pressing. I can put these talks off and put exploration and research off uh, while I do uh, the necessary construction stuff, but I can't do the other way. Anyway, guys, so um, we'll have more later this year on this. Uh, history is not what we've been told. All this stuff's going to be coming out in this in this period. I will get around to doing a immediacy data discussion for uh, the USA the way I did for Europe. Uh, I'm waiting for the next uh, bit of the run to finish. And as I said, it's one of the reasons I set the server up. So maybe a couple of days from now, maybe tomorrow, it just depends on when it's done. This machine is very fast. Um, uh, but anyway, so then I'll go ahead and, and do a discussion on the um, immediacy data for 
North America and probably Latin America. Got some of that too. Anyway, take care. Summer, get your chores done uh, before this terrible winter hits. It's going to be brutal. Take care.